Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel. And today we're on New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, New Books European Studies, and New Books in History with our guest, Faith Hillis, who's the author of Utopia's Discontents, Russian Emigres, and the Quest for Freedom, 1830s to 1930s, published by Oxford University Press. 2021. Congratulations, Faith, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be able to speak with you. So a little bit about Professor Hillis. She is Associate Professor of Russian History at the University of Chicago. She has received grants from the Kalman Center for Scholars and Writers at the New York Public Library, the National Endowment for the Humanities, IREX, and NCEER, among others. She's also the author of Children of Rus, Right Bank Ukraine, and The Invention of a Russian Nation, published by Cornell University Press 2013. And I should add that Faith is also um, active on social media. She has a Twitter handle at Faith C. Hillis, and she also has a website at faithhillis.com. So I want to get um, right to the content of the book, Faith, and um, this is such a rich book in detail. What was it that got you started on the topic? What motivated you to write it? Well, I guess I'm the kind of historian who's always been driven uh, and directed by the sources. So I began, I think, from a really empirical place, actually not knowing at all what I was doing. Uh, this project started in the in the Hoover archives um, in 2012. A colleague had mentioned to me rather offhandedly that these records of the Paris Sahrana were, were there at Stanford and um, remarked that they had just not been mined very well by historians. And so I just started there, you know, going to Hoover. I went in December and it was a nice escape from Chicago, uh, a great place to work. But I, I just began um, looking at these police archives, actually. Um, and I had had experience working with police archives in Russia, but it was um, just much easier to sort of work through them in a, in a expeditious way um, at, at Hoover, thanks to their wonderful archivists. So I began reading these files of um, these Ahrana agents surveilling the immigration and I think it really took me actually quite a long time to um, figure out sort of the contours of the project. Um, but I did begin with that rich archival source space and then just began reading in general about immigration. And I guess I would say it was relatively late in the project that I decided to narrow the purview of that immense topic of immigration and all the different kinds of people who left by really focusing um, on what becomes the central analytic focus of my book, which is these so-called Russian colonies, these um, sort of cohesive immigrant communities that emerge in Western and Central Europe. So that's where I began. Mm-hmm. And were there any books that maybe inspired you to tackle the project? Um, I mean, I'm thinking of, of like Tom Stoppard's play or Ernst Bloch that you've talked about these writers before, but were, were there any particular books or monographs that, that got you started into investigating all of these colonies? Yeah, well, again, I would say I, I, I stumbled on my theory relatively late in the project, and I began from a more empirical position. So one book that I can remember reading very early on was uh, Michael Gable's book about um, interwar immigrant communities in Paris. And he's, of course, not interested in Russians per se, but he's interested in uh, Chinese, Vietnamese, Indians, and other, you know, sort of expatriate communities in Paris. And it's thinking in terms of of neighborhood and community. And that was one book I read that I think was was helpful. But um, I think I eventually decided to narrow the contours of the project primarily just by reading a ton of memoirs as well, myself. Mm -hmm. Um, And people just speak about these communities so vividly that um, a combination of just sort of thinking about like space, communities, and then having these rich voices of my historical actors is what got me to where I ended up. 
Mm-hmm. And so what's a colony? Could you tell us <laughs> what it is, space, place? How do you begin to map the, the place, the space, and the people? Right, exactly. So um, <clears throat> the term colony is, of course, one that has many meanings. And that's part of um, what I was playing with in the book, actually. I like that ambiguity. So the term originates uh, in the Russian context, as far as I can tell, in the 18th and 19th centuries to refer to these um, exclaves of foreigners who live in Russia. So, for example, the Swiss immigrants who come to Russia, they, they talk about where they live as the Swiss colony um, And this is the context in which the term emerges uh, as my characters are using it. So a a community of foreigners living in a a distant country. Um, So in my case, I'm interested in communities of czarist subjects living abroad. Um, And the first colony that Russian colony in Europe that I can identify uh, emerges in the city of Zurich in the mid 1860s as a result of um, actually students, uh, university students who go to study abroad, especially women uh, who are the first to co-educate Zurich University. And um, they, at this point, begin to attract male students as Zurich begins to become a hub of Russian life, thanks to these women moving abroad. And they also begin to attract um, this previously rather scattered collection of immigrants, Russian immigrants who had been living abroad, people like, you know, um, uh, Bakunin and um, these political immigrants, but who had, who had sort of existed as a loose, uh, a loose republic of letters, rather than some kind of like actual community that exists in space. So all of these groups come together, this, these students, the political emigres, and then you get just kind of like curious Russian travelers who, who stumble upon Zurich as it begins to become a destination, all um, creating a new infrastructure in this city that includes communes, that includes uh, cafeterias and cafes and libraries. Um, so that is that becomes the first Russian colony. And as the century progresses, they just begin to explode across the continent, really appearing in every large city, as well as most mid-sized university towns as well. Mm -hmm. And could you give us an idea of how you structure the book into your three parts in in your chapters? So, I mean, I love what you're doing in terms of the concrete utopia and and intersecting with quotidian reality, as you call it. But I, I understand that you'd have a narrative that you start with in the 1830s and then end in the epilogue in the 1930s. So how, how did you right. work that out? Right. So as I said, the, there's a rich history of emigration uh, that really the story begins in the 1830s with both the Polish emigres and also the first political emigres coming abroad. Um, but as I, I treat that generation of emigres as uh, as thinking of immigration and its um, opportunities in rather abstract terms. And this is what I said before. They're, they're sort of dreamers, philosophers. They function as a republic of letters rather than as some kind of identifiable um, community in urban life. Uh, and I see that Zurich moment in the 60s as when utopia, the utopian ideas of these immigrants begins to achieve this concrete form in space in urban life. Uh, and so the first part of the book is called Making Utopia Concrete. And this is basically an exploration of how these immigrant neighborhoods emerge, what kinds of uh, institutions their residents create. And the central argument of this part is that um, sort of the political ideas that are coming out of these spaces are actually intimately connected to the, the space itself, to the institutions mm-hmm. that these residents create, and to the encounters that these very small, intellectually intense rather incestuous um, communities. Let's talk about that. (laughs) Communities create. So in other words, I I think this book is is trying to um, tackle some classic questions in intellectual history about the creation of radical ideas, but to to argue that space and place and encounter really, really matter in creating those ideas. Um, So after the first part of the book reconstructs these immigrant colonies, as it were, the second part of the book called Europe's Russian Moment, turns to the question of uh, the relationships between these Russian colonies abroad and the European societies that surrounded them. Um, So I talk about how these um, political ideas of these these are subjects living abroad become inspiration for a variety of emancipatory movements across Europe, from um, feminists and suffragettes 
to um, early sort of anti-colonial movements to the international left. But I'm also looking at the ways in which um, Russians living abroad become a focus of increasing concern, uh, concern about um, about uh, free labor movement, concern about uh the demographics of these communities, given that it turns out they're actually overwhelmingly Jewish. So a lot of the story has to do with anti-Semitism, um, concern about radical ideas and the potential terroristic threats of, of these communities. So that's part two. And then um, part three of the book is called Revolutionary Repercussions. And it, it turns to the period after 1900, when the mood in these communities becomes quite dark. And I analyze the emergence of Bolshevism as um, really a response to the peculiar challenges that um, these communities began to face in this period, both internal challenges related to uh, factional conflict and um, doctrinal disputes, but also external conflicts as Europeans who had, as I said earlier, really looked to these communities for inspiration, become increasingly skeptical and concerned about their residents and um, turn to increasing repression, actually, against their residents. So um, the last part of the book goes um, through the Russian Revolution, actually, and is also thinking about how the emigre experience influences how the revolution plays out in 1917, when most of the major political leaders in 1917 actually only return home in 1917 uh, after living for years and in many cases for decades abroad. And I take the story actually through the 1930s, which I see as the natural end of this, um, the moment when essentially these um, former cohorts of immigrants are killed en masse in the Stalinist purges. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and toward the end, I I definitely want to ask you about Lenin and Stalin and Lenin's understanding of conspiracy and and Stalin's understanding really attitudes toward the emigration and, and why he thought of it as a threat. Um, I, I did want to, you know, sort of get an idea from you, if I may, about numbers. So I, I know you have um, you have said in the book that many of the colonies were set up around universities. At least these were where Russophone populations um, tended to dwell. Um, and you have numbers for for Switzerland as a destination for a lot of Tsarist subjects. I, I think you had about eighty five hundred. Um, Russian subjects there as a destination for radicals by by about 1910. So, I mean, how does that compare with with the other more com- common, bigger places like Paris, London, Geneva, and and were there smaller destinations in in terms of scale that you yeah. included or excluded, and and how did you decide to do that? Right, it's a great question and one that I struggled with a lot because there are no reliable population figures. Exactly, given that most of the people who lived in these spaces left the Russian Empire illegally and were not traced upon their exit, and until the very late nineteenth century, most European states did not require a registration or any kind of internal surveillance either. So it's it's also they're not tracked upon entry either. Uh, what I can tell you, though, from police sources, which admittedly, again, are are problematic, but um, I think they're fairly, um, I think it's fair to say that they're corroborated by census evidence as well. In Paris, at the turn of the century, we have about 30,000 um, Russian subjects. Okay. And in London, we have over 100,000. So these are very, wow. very large communities. Um, and they're also in smaller um, smaller cities in those countries, like in um, in Marseille and in Montpellier, which is a, a big university town in Lyon. There are Russians similarly in, you know, Liverpool, Leeds. Um, mm-hmm. What else? I think Edinburgh is a, is a major center. So anyway, we're talking about very, so quite substantial numbers. Although as, a, as an added caveat, you know, these communities are also very mobile and people circulate and they're constantly moving from one place to another. And there are also, because I chose these Russian speaking and sort of Russified communities as my analytic, there are also people who, who enter through them, but then who leave, <laughs> who, yeah, who yeah. give up the revolutionary cause or who get a university education and actually become a bourgeois lawyer and they exit. <laughs> exit physically and they exit mentally from my story at that point. So that's also, and there are also people who naturalize, right? So um, the story becomes difficult to, to, to tell as people sort of veer off, but the colonies themselves in, in at least some of these cities were quite large. Mm -hmm. Um, Berlin becomes another major center at the turn of the century. 
But there are Russians basically everywhere in Europe. I have um, a series of maps that I did mapping this out as best I could in a non-scientific way. I I want to plug that now. (laughs) Go go see Faith's maps. She worked for a very long time on them, right? I did. So people can find those at utopiasdiscontents.com. But there you can see, you know, you have um, you have. Jewish anarchists living in tiny provincial towns in the Swiss Alps. You have, you know, people in Prague, in um, Krakow, in the Balkans, basically everywhere. (laughs) Um, But uh, the final part of your question, how did I decide where to focus? I I did make the liberal states of um, England, France, and Switzerland, which had consistently the most immigrants by virtue of their relatively generous asylum laws. I made those uh, the central focus of my archival research. I did a little bit of archival research um, in Germany as well. Um, but I, I did have to limit the purview. And also, you know, I was working with languages, European languages I could read. So I didn't go to Romania or Bulgaria, which I right. could have done as well. <laughs> right, right. Someone, w- you know, one of your graduate students should do that next. And, and especially the Armenian, you know, communities. I think that would be a really fascinating project. Um, I, wanted to, I wanted to ask you about some of the ideological orientations. So, you know, in, in my mind, I guess, reading some of the old books like Isaiah Berlin or Martin Malia, I, I have this stereotype, and, and it's probably untrue, but I think of Herzen as a kind of roving person who, you know, then will, will leave after um, after Paris in, in 1871 and, and go to Geneva. So, I, I mean, how then do you see the ideologies reflected in the local colonies, which, of course, will then lead to the to the skloki, to the disputes. What are some of these ideologies is reflected and, and maybe you know, reflected in the libraries, clubs, cafes, newspapers, and so forth for these emigres? Right. So there, there are sort of two competing phenomena that we see. As I, as I mentioned, people circulate um, a lot. And um, as time goes, there are certain moments at which certain locales become major centers for particular ideologies. So for example, um, Bern University in Switzerland and the city in general is, is fa- becomes famous for its very, very large populations of Russian Jewish students. So that city becomes a major center of both Bund activism and Zionist activism uh, in the late 19th century. And sort of like a lot of Yiddish-speaking radicalism is happening in Bern. Um, in London, London becomes a major center of anarchist activism. It is the largest center um, of, of Russian anarchism by far, and sort of the leading newspapers, radical clubs, organizations, etc., are all anarchist. Um, but at the same time, in all of these cities, you get constant confrontations be- between members of proponents of all different kinds of ideologies. So even though, you know, Bern is this famous center of Zionism and Bundism, we also get, there's a wonderful anecdote about um, also Marxists coming into Bern and sort of having public debates with Zionists and Bundists, all Russian Marxists, I should say. Um, I think it's, I believe it's Plohanov who comes um, and starts debating with these other figures, trying to, to win the Jewish students away from the Bund and away from non-Marxist forms of Zionism. So um, a big part of the book is also arguing that we can't actually think of these ideologies in isolation. And a lot of the intellectual history tends to focus on, you know, the development of anarchism or the development of Bolshevism or the development of the Bund. And one of the points that I'm making is that actually all of these ideologies developed in contact, very close contact within these immigrant milieu, where you have people debating in clubs and communes and, you know, lovers breaking up over ideological differences and all of this stuff. And that, um, these these debates and encounters that happen are actually cons- constitutive of the ideologies themselves. Uh, and the best example of that I can give you actually has to do with the Bolshevik-Menshevik split, which comes a little bit later. Um, but Lenin is, um, you know, very invested in, in portraying Bolsheviks as strong, masculine, um, uh, full, you know, steel-like, unyielding. And he's doing that within this immigre setting by trying to smear his Menshevik opponents as feminine, weak, bourgeois, Jewish, incidentally, too. This is a thing he uses. There's There are um, also sort of like homophobic undertones as well. He's playing with these ideas that they're not masculine. They may be homosexuals, things like this. Um, 
but actually that these debates that are playing out, I mean, they're very personal, right? Um, he's smearing his opponents as sort of like effeminate Jews, basically. Um, but that actually becomes a central um, raison d'etre of Bolshevism then saying, we are not that. We are something else. We're strong, masculine, all Russian, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. So that's how I see it playing out in this setting. Yeah. And, and, and if I may, I mean, I do get the impression that Yiddish sources are, are really like absolutely central to this project. And, and maybe you could talk about um, this in relation to the, to the cohesiveness or maybe lack of cohesiveness and, and impressions of um, Jewish politics across borders, as you describe in the, in the development of the labor movement and not just the Bund, but actually, you know, I'd really, you know, like if you could kind of outline what, what sort of research you did in Yiddish for the project. Yeah. So, um, there's, I, I worked, I guess, mainly with memoirs and with this very, very rich Yiddish press. And um, the so-called Jewish question becomes sort of a central preoccupation of the book, in part because, as I previously mentioned, again, it's difficult to make demo- clear demographic estimates, but it appears that about 60 to 80 percent of these immigrants who lived abroad were of Jewish origin. Of course, they, they relate to Judaism in different ways and, you know, have different definitions of what it means to be Jewish or to what extent they identify as Jewish. But 60 to 80 percent are born into Jewish families, let's put it that way. And also um, the Jewish question, I think, just attains such an important um, symbolic import in Russian radical politics, because Jews are, of course, seen as the most oppressed people of the empire. And therefore, if Jews can be emancipated, everyone can be emancipated. This is kind of the logic. Um, so throughout the book, I guess I trace, um, I trace this question as one that both unifies communities and also divides them. Uh, it can unify them. So I talk in the book about how um, the first generation of, um, of political immigrants included many Russified Jewish intellectuals, but those who were sort of active in the, in the, in the um, you know, the Russian radical movement. They had maybe spoken Yiddish as children, but they quit. They started speaking Russian. They forgot their Yiddish and they, they were operating in this general Russian revolutionary context. And um, by the 1870s and especially 80s, these um, Jewish intellectuals began to make contact with a different demographic of Russian Jews living abroad, namely these um, laborers from the Pale of Settlement who are overwhelmingly Yiddish speaking and who are working in sweatshops um, and in artisanal um, settings in London and Paris. And these Russified intellectuals basically began bringing the culture of Russian revolutionary politics to these Yiddish speaking Jews abroad, who really had, you know, if you were to ask them, they didn't really have much connection to Russia at all, right? Like they, yeah, they're yeah. Yiddish speaking. That's they would have, they would have surprising. said, I'm from Vilna, you know? Exactly, <laughs> like, exactly. Regional, right? The, the town, the city. And they were not invested in Russian politics, as it were, because there was really no mechanism for them to become invested. But I, mm-hmm. I, I show in the book how uh, abroad the, these large um, cohorts of Jewish laborers became sort of russified in a way and became involved, invested in this Russian intellect, uh, Russian revolutionary endeavor. And I have some incredible sources of these um, union meetings in London and Paris where these sweatshop workers will rise up and will, you know, begin to give speeches in Yiddish saying, Mm -hmm. you know, my suffering under my uh, capitalist overlords in London is connected to the suffering of Russian Jews under the czar. And I am prepared to go back to Russia and give my life to overthrow the czar. So you see them like really (laughs) putting their, um, their current problems, which seemingly have very little to do with Russia in this larger Russian context in a fascinating way. So this is how I see this unifying element. Um, However, it's also a divisive element because another of the surprises that I turned up in this project was because of this very large contingent of um, Yiddish-speaking workers who are developing revolutionary sympathies abroad, it turns out it's not only the Bund that's interested in Yiddish language publications. Basically, all of these groups were fighting for the loyalty of Jewish workers. So you have a very, very rich Yiddish language anarchist press. You have mm-hmm. um, Marxists who are not Bundists pub- publishing in, um, in Yiddish. The, the PPS, actually, the Polish Socialist Party, is one of the pioneers of Yiddish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Yiddish radical yeah. publications. Exactly. Pilsudski from, uh, and his friends from Vilna. Um, and so you, you get these groups competing 
um, and fighting for the the loyalties of these laborers, which creates also really explosive conflicts in these communities as well. Mm-hmm. And and so you mentioned biographies, and I wonder if you can start telling some stories because I, this is you know what I really would love to know. Um, there are celebrities like Vera Zasulich, who's kind of a household name, and then you know writers like Olivia and Helen Rossetti, sisters who leave. Um, memoirs about their discoveries of radical politics. So I mean, as you begin sorting through a lot of the um, quotidian, let's say, literature, what what stories strike you? I mean, in the relationships and I would say like in, in the realm of spatial politics. Yeah, I think um, one of the one of my favorite. Oh, there's so many good memoirs that I read. I mean, these the, really these 19th century memoirs are incredible. Um, from Vera Figner to Kropotkin, um, there's a follower of Lavrov named um, Kulyabko Koretsky, who writes just a wonderful memoir that's especially vivid about the process of crossing borders. So about these smuggling networks that get people out of Russia and bring illegal literature in. Um, but I think I discovered some of these personalities who, who served as sort of my guides to the colonies. So um, okay. One of the most vivid of these is written by Vladimir Medum, who is uh, a Bundist. And um, he talks about, um, he's active in this barren colony, but he travels all over all over Europe and just paints this wonderful portrait of um, uh, the kind of emotional life that he had abroad. He talks about these familial ties that he forged with fellow immigrants in reading groups and libraries and canteens and remarks on how, you know, the the feelings of love and camaraderie that emerged. But he also explains in equally vivid form uh, the feelings of um, just... Alienation. Not only alienation, (laughs) but actually disdain and hatred (laughs) that can also emerge from these intimate relationships. So... Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. (laughs) He talks, for example, about... uh, I did not know this before, but apparently the... um, the early Bolshevik Zinoviev had been a Bundist before he becomes a Bolshevik. And so the, the ways in which when people switch from one party to another, you know, they're just horrible breaks that occur with their friends, again, sometimes with their mm-hmm. lovers, with their family members who may be abroad. And it's just horrible drama and upheaval. And I think Medem just captures the emotional impact of all of this in a way that helped me, I think, to understand how, how all of this worked. Mm-hmm. And and so I mean you mentioned that some of the, you know, the this familiarity breeding um, a lot of discontent and even malice is there a moment let's say internally or externally you have part two Europe's Russian moment where there's a, a, a sort of significant event I mean how mm-hmm. how much attention are, are these emigrate communities paying to the world beyond Russia are, are they focused you know, almost obsessively so on Russian late imperial politics or czarist politics, or I, how how do you bring in the larger, let's say, European narrative? Because it's, it's a big, big master narrative that you have through, I, I would say, maybe not a master narrative, but in between all of these micro stories, how, how are they paying attention to larger events? Right. So the Russians, I would say, are intensely focused on Russia. <laughs> Um, and, and it's astonishing because there is a way in which I think their understanding of Russia becomes quite warped because, as I previously mentioned, some of them have been abroad for so long, they really wouldn't know Russia if they went home to recognize it, you know. So um, Klikhanov and um, Kropotkin, I believe, both immigrated in the late 70s. And they're abroad until 1917. So, you know, there's this element of which, in which they're obsessed with Russia, but Russia is kind of a figment of their immigrant imagination. Um, however, as intensely focused, and one could even say as intensely solipsistic <laughs> these communities are, um, yeah, the, uh, the European observers who surround them are intensely interested in these Russians because in many cases, these Russian enclaves are sort of the first um, identifiable enclaves of non-Europeans, if we're thinking of Russia as, you know, non-European, which is certainly how Western Europeans at that time thought, they are the first kind of identifiable immigrant neighborhoods in some of these European countries. So people watch them and are fascinated by them. And they remark on 
wow, there are all these feminist experiments happening here and these women are practicing free love and there are all these Jews who are saying, you know, we're emancipated and we're going to lead the world to revolution. So all of these um, European observers become quite fascinated with them. But as I, as I show in this middle portion about European engagements, Europeans also don't exactly understand the Russians either, right? There are language barriers, there, there's all kinds of um, preconceptions and projections that the Europeans are sort of imposing on, onto the Russians. But in general, the story that I'm telling is prior to about 1890, um, these Russian communities, in spite of the fact that they're very radical and you know many at this point are openly engaging in terrorist activity or advocating terrorist activity, I, sort of ironically, liberal society is fetting them and is idealizing them as freedom fighters who are going to tear down this obscuritan oppressionist, um, obscuritanist oppression uh, in Russia. However, um, you asked about turning points. And I think in my book, 1890 is a really major turning point. We haven't yet discussed the role of the Tsar's secret police very much. I said that that was where the, the story started for me with the archival sources. But the um, machinations of the Tsar's secret police abroad and their efforts to thwart these immigrant communities and the plans they're laying is a major uh, factor in my story as well. And so what happens in, in, um, in the 1890s, already in the 80s, the Tsar's secret police is working quite systematically trying to undermine these positive European opinions of Russian emigres. Uh, they form a press agency that is um, not only paying off prominent European newspapers, including Le Figaro, incidentally, <laughs> paying wow. them to publish um, <laughs> stories that yeah. are defamatory toward emigres and um, sort of apologetics about the policies of the Tsarist regime. There are a network, a, a loose network of salons that are working with highly placed European officials in both England and France to sort of cultivate um, or turn, turn public opinion among those who have power in Russia's favor and against the emigres. Um, but in 1890, there's actually a, a provocation that is organized by the Tsar's secret police. It's um, not the only one, but it's the most successful and prominent. And what happens there is that the, the chief of the Akhrana uh, basically delivers bomb building materials to this circle of immigrants and his agent teaches them how to build bombs. And as this plot is nearing its completion, the Tsar's secret police inform the French police who swoop in and arrest these immigrants. And so a trial happens in the summer of 1890, and this becomes an international media sensation. This is at the very beginning of this um, transnational anarchist threat where we begin to see spates of bombings and people are very on edge about this. And um, this provocation and the media attention that it gets, you can see how profoundly it begins to change European public opinion about these immigrants and how, how quickly. So there's this idea now that, oh, my God, these immigrants are, are not just dreamers. They're, they're terrorists and they're here to hurt Europeans, not only Russians. And there's also this idea now that the, the Russian secret police, uh, contrary to being the representatives of this, this oppressive regime, are actually potential allies to European governments in this emergent war against terror. Um, so it's actually, it's, it's incredible. It's only in 1909 does the French government discover that this whole thing was a plot by the Tsar secret police that they had been deceived. But by that point, it's too late, right? Public opinion has decisively turned against these immigrants and they're largely seen as, um, as terrorists and as threats instead of the refugees that they were once perceived to be. Mm -hmm. and, and I wonder if you could say, a few words about um, this shift toward the practical spirit of the radicals, as you mentioned in the 1890s, or, or maybe concrete plans, and Lenin's attitude, because, of course, you know, you say, and I think it's a very powerful argument in the book, how Lenin begins to formulate this new principle of conspiratia to, to mm -hmm. guide party politics. And, you know, I mean, he's obviously very, very wary about the, this, um, these skloki, I mean, the, these sort of like internal quarrels that are going mm -hmm. on. How, how do you research that and how do you begin to frame Lenin's entry into the story? Right. So, um, again, I think Lenin's, Lenin's innovations have usually been approached through a relatively narrow intellectual history lens, right? That he's responding to these debates that are happening with the economists, and he's responding to these debates happening within European social democracy and to the failure of revolutionary movements in Russia and this kind of thing. And I'm interested in how Lenin 
in the vein of these these former immigrants is interacting with the, the actual physical space and the cultural milieu in which he finds himself abroad. So I'm drawing when I'm talking about conspiratia and Lars Lee's excellent intellectual history of how this concept emerges. But I'm arguing that conspiratia is not just a concept or a practice, it's actually something that is made possible by this immigrant space. So um, Lenin argues, uh, his, 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 his concept of conspiracy, I have, I have a quote in the book, I, I'm probably not going to quote it correctly, but he says something like, you must only discuss issues with those who need to discuss them. You know, people must only know things that when they need to know them, um, nothing more, nothing less. So what he does is Lenin, as he begins to form this Bolshevik inner sanctum, he actually um, withdraws from the, the large Russian colony that's around the university in Geneva. And he moves, he doesn't move far, he moves a few blocks south um, to, the, um, to the river, along the river in Geneva. But it's far enough to create physical distance to, st- to get his Bolsheviks out of these, um, you know, nighttime cafes in which they're having debates and these student squabbles and, and whatnot. He, he, Martov loves cafe culture. And um, before the Bolshevik Menshevik uh, break, Lenin is always chiding him, saying, "You know, your loose lips is going to ship is going to sink our ship. Your loose lips will sink our ship. Your, uh, you know, your gossiping and fighting all night is going to get us all arrested." So Lenin acts on this, and he creates his own little Bolshevik colony um, that has its own canteen, its own exclusive library, its own <laughs> institutions, and he basically um, develops Bolshevik culture within this new setting. And then sends the Bolsheviks, you know, during the day into the cafes to agitate among the students and whatnot. But the all the strategy, all the all the late night debating sessions happen in this more secretive um, setting. So I'm I'm thinking of of emigre um, culture as kind of providing the problem that Lenin is trying to solve, right? Re- reforming the party. Um, keeping these uh, constant debates from destroying it. But it's also the solution where he's, he's also thinking about space and place as part of his new revolutionary ideology. So, um, Faith, I wonder if you could say a word about the conspiracy, conspiracy culture among women Mensheviks and Bolsheviks. I mean, mm-hmm. how do they adapt to this? overground versus underground culture in, in the colonies and especially after 1905. Mm-hmm. So um, gender is a theme of the book as well. And I've talked about the colonies as a locus for projects to emancipate women. Uh, and gender also factors into this Bolshevik Menshevik split. Um, so the early Bolsheviks and this early inner sanctum contained many married couples um, but in general, what we see in this new Bolshevik subculture that Lenin creates in the south side of Geneva is that uh, it's, it's more patriarchal in nature than previous revolutionary experiments. So women are still involved, but they're in general playing less public roles. Um, they're do, and they're playing more traditionally feminine roles. So they're doing things like managing the correspondence. This is Krupskaya's um, job. Again, it's an important one, but it's one you know, done in private. Um, they're also doing things like managing the Bolshevik canteen, doing the cooking, right? So more mm-hmm. traditionally sort of feminine um, tasks. So I'm reading um, here Lenin as patriarch. And Lenin is also incidentally kind of overtly challenging some of these feminist movements and immigration, charging that they're separatists and that they will they threaten to sort of split the movement apart. So I'm thinking through the ways in which Lenin is trying to define the Bolsheviks as masculine in this in this cultural setting that he creates Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Now, there are many uh, female Mensheviks as well, and gender relations play out somewhat differently there. So the book's cover is actually a wonderful photo I found in the, um, in the papers of a woman named Sonia Garvey, who, along with her husband, Piotr, they were prominent Mensheviks. Um, and uh, as far as I can tell, the Mensheviks are a little, the Mensheviks in general are not as obsessed with this sort of patriarchal culture. They tend to be much more open, much more democratic. Uh, they tend to preserve this kind of women's emancipation, em- emancipatory spirit that had guided the the, um, the immigration previously. And women remain very involved uh, in, in public roles. So, um, for example, there's a um, Menshevik club in Paris that's actually run by a woman. Um, I also have examples that come out of the archival sources of, you know, women sort of um, participating 
alongside men in these uh, ideological and doctrinal debates. And in fact, this this woman, mm-hmm. Sonia Garvey, who I just mentioned, who's on the on the cover, uh, she was famous for getting into a very heated dispute with a male Bolshevik at a bar. And she actually <laughs> threw a full glass of beer at his head <laughs> and <laughs> got the upper hand. So you get sort of the, the spiritedness awesome. of these women as well. <laughs> Yeah, I, there has to be a play about this. I, I, I mean, are you going to do this next? Because I, I, I would, I would see that, the and I would want to know the actor. Yeah, yeah exactly. If Hollywood wants to come knocking, <laughs> um, pitch this to the for the next Netflix series. Right. that would be awesome. <laughs> Look, I've got to ask you about 1917. So this is a hard question, I guess. And, you know, uh, what happens in the colonies? Because um, I, I love, you know, how you describe the revolution revolution outbreak. And it happens and the Bolsheviks are kind of caught by surprise. And, you know, there's ap- apocryphal versions of the story, too, as well. But what does it mean for the colonies and, and you know, also in relation to their host countries? Right. So the colonies, as a result of their internal disputes, are already in a really bad place by about 1910. They're beginning to just completely unravel and fall apart. And World War I uh, furthers that because in, the, um, in, in Germany and Austria and, and countries fighting against Russia, czar subjects are, of course, enemy combatants. And even in the, in the Allies, Russians are treated very badly uh, in the First World War. They're uh, both Britain and France attempt to conscript them or to force them to serve in the Tsarist military. And many of these um, people are pacifists who, who want nothing to do with this. So on the eve of 1917, they're very broken and divided. And in fact, Lenin himself, I found this astonishing speech he gives uh, in Switzerland in January 1917, basically saying, <clears throat> I, I have to finally concede the revolution is not going to happen in our, li- in our lifetime. And I just hope that the youth We'll see it in the next generation. <laughs> so, and of course, this is a month before the czarist regime falls. It's astonishing. Um, <clears throat> but 1917 further empties the colonies simply because once the czarist regime falls, all of these exiles can return without the threat of arrest. And they do. <laughs> and of course, mm-hmm. they're also, they've been having these fights over the future of Russia in cafes in Paris and Berlin and Geneva, but now they can go back to Russia and actually make this happen. So I, I treat 1917 less as a, as a break or a seizure and more as just a moment where um, these, these long debates and relationships that have unfolded overseas are simply exported, right? And the, the drama continues. It's just it, it now continues in this, in this new setting. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think through the ways in which the experience of immigration helped Lenin to define this, this revolutionary agenda, but it also, I argue, um, in the colonies, I think Lenin had very, um, very effectively used this issue of milieu, right? Understood the connection between setting, physical setting, cultural setting, and the possibilities of politics. And I think that this also allows him, when he returns to Russia, to begin to adjust his strategy. Uh, so, for example, these these feminists whom he had previously uh, attacked as separatists, he now makes women's emancipation and the you know the creation of women's sections of the party mm-hmm. a major party priority. Ditto, <laughs> exactly, and ditto actually with the boon. So um, he's able to, after years of these bitter, bitter polemics with the boon, um, he wins over many of these Bundist activists who actually convince him to make this Yiddish language publication that they've really mastered overseas a central plank of the Bolshevik mm-hmm. platform, and he does. So um, I think you can think of the legacy of the colonies as both um, providing some sort of inspiration, but also of providing this kind of flexible repertoire in which I, I think Lenin just realizes that his politics need to meet the demands of the moment and also the, the realities of the setting in which he finds himself. Mm-hmm. And, and so what would you say, I mean, this is a question for modern Russian history as well as modern Jewish history, but in reflecting back historically and historiographically on these utopian experiments, um, what, what is the larger sort of argument or, or legacy, one might say, for this as an emancipatory story? And I, I'm thinking of the grand project here, not just of, for the emancipation of women or the emancipation of of Jewish populations, but how, I mean, how do you read this in the larger context of the giant books that have been written about 
the Bolsheviks as a you know millennial cult. I'm thinking of Slyozkin. Um, what what would be your historiographical, I guess, a big kind of picture statement from this? Well, I think my big picture statement is to say that ideas don't exist in a vacuum and that they're very influenced by everyday encounters and by setting. And, you know, it's, it's really impossible for me to divide these, these, these two issues. But I think another um, question that, or theme that runs through the book that I found really intriguing that I don't think has been dealt with um, quite so much, and actually I think is very, is very relevant to debates that people are having today about all kinds of emancipatory movements, is sort of the tension between universalism and particularism where on the one hand, the idea of emancipation is necessarily universalist, right? That we're, we're going to overturn the old order and liberate everyone and we're all going to be happy. But there's also all this push um, from groups that feel that they've, they have particular forms of oppression that they face or particular challenges that actually need to be recognized in order for this universalist project to succeed. So in my book, we see this primarily um, with special demands being made on the part of of women about the special demands uh, needs they face, and also this Jewish question. This is, of course, the central argument of the Bund that you can't just pretend that sort of ethnic ethnicity and anti-Semitism doesn't exist, and everyone, all proletarians, are you know brothers. That there's actually special issues that Jews in the Russian Empire face that need to be addressed in order to work toward this goal of universal emancipation. So, um, the tension between these two visions that that is just simply irreconcilable at the end of the book is is one that really interested me and one that I think adds to the historiography of the revolutionary movement. But like I said, it's one that I've found my students today thinking about this are actually quite well equipped to do so because it's resonant with with our own debates about Black Lives Matter and feminism and things like this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and I guess you know my follow up question is is do you see kind of co optations? I, I know you use this word in the conclusion or epilogue where you're talking about the Bolshevik co optation of Jewish socialism. But I would guess you know the splits are still certainly there between the Bundists and Zionists and and so on. Um, what's the afterlives of, of your of your personalities and you know I mean any stories I guess um, but the, the labor legacy is certainly really important in the emigration into the 50s and 60s and, and beyond. right I think um, one of the things that struck me most again so when you think of the drama that unfolds in the Russian Revolution and then in the immediate aftermath of the revolution with the struggle between the Bolsheviks and their left-wing opponents of the of the party dictatorship um, For me, this really understanding that this was the continuation of debates that had been happening in these close quarters for about 30 years really helped me understand these moments. And again, a lot of it comes out most poignantly in the memoiristic literature. An example that I'll give you is uh, there's um, a wonderful memoir by a woman. I think her name is Yekaterina Drabkina, um, who is a, a longtime party activist who witnesses in 1918 when Martov is finally expelled from the Council of Soviets and the, you know, the real oppression of the Mensheviks is beginning. And um, she gives this just heartbreaking uh, uh, description of this scene in which Martov by that point has very advanced tuberculosis and is, um, he's so stressed out at the Bolsheviks attacking him that he, he has a coughing fit and he's you know, spitting blood and he can barely breathe. And he starts shaking. He's so angry and he can't get his arm into his coat. And Bolsheviks begin sort of mocking him in a mean-spirited way, again, saying he's, he's, such, he's so effeminate and weak, he can't even get his arm in his coat. And Martov is sort of between coughs says, you know, you may laugh now, but Lenin is going to come for you too. It's this very dramatic moment. Um, and this observer who's, who, who had been in immigration with these men and who had been privy to their debates going back to the early 1900s understands that this is really the culmination of what had begun back then in the immigrant colonies. And she says something like, who could have guessed that this dispute that we had at a party conference in 1903 would have evolved into the difference between revolution and counter-revolution, right? Wow. So saying yeah. that, that this, is, wow. this was deeply personal and you right. had, you know, just this, this really personal dispute at a 1903 party conference that has now had 
world historical consequences that Mm -hmm. will continue to play out for decades. And that really got me, I think. So thinking about this revolutionary period, again, not just the political drama, but as also a very interpersonal and a psychic drama as well. Mm. Yeah, I I definitely see that. I mean, this is a very psychological book. And I I mean, I just want to compliment you on that because every dream is a fantasy and and Mm -hmm. there are many fantasies, I think, in that persist um, in emigre mm-hmm. cultures and in diasporas today. So recommend some books. Tell us what to read here at New Books Network. What else can we read? <laughs> well, um, I'll speak about some, you asked about books that inspired me. And um, I guess as I read, there were a couple actually in very different genres. So one that I'll mention, which I'm sure many people have already read, is just a masterful uh, treatment of sort of transnational history of ideas is Holly Case's An Age of Questions. It's such a unique book um, and just so smart in the way that she looks at the form of the question itself as something that needs to be examined in 19th century intellectual history. So I, I love that book and I drew a lot of inspiration from it. Um, in terms of storytelling, I was really influenced by a book I read while writing this book, which is um, Mark Mazower's family memoir, uh, half family memoir and half archival exploration called um, What What You Did Not Tell, I believe is the name of the book. And this is about, it, it intersects with my book because it turns out that his um, grandfather was quite a prominent boond activist around the time of the formation of the party. And he was active in um, in the immigration as well as in Russia. But after the 1905 revolution, he became disillusioned and essentially became a bourgeois gentleman in, in North London and never talked about his revolutionary background. So the book is a wonderful reconstruction by Mazower as a historian of trying to piece together the story of his grandfather. But it's also just a beautiful narrative about family and about you know the revolutionary life of, of this man that um, I think helped me think through sort of how to tell a story. And the final book that I'll throw out there, uh, one that I've actually, I recently taught a book about 19th century leftisms. And I began by framing it with a book that has seemingly nothing to do with 19th century leftisms, uh, which is Sadia Hartman's much acclaimed um, Wayward Lives Intimate Experiments, which is a sort of black feminist take on um, on how the quote unquote wayward lives of um, African American women at the early 20th century could provide a source of freedom and emancipation and and liberation. And my students found reading these um, 19th century Russian sources through the lens of this contemporary Black feminist thinker really, really inspiring. And um, that is also just a beautiful book and a masterful way of weaving, um, I think, individual stories and archival explorations together. So I'll recommend those three for now. Fabulous, Faith. You answered every single one of my questions in this new 21st century age of questions. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I really want to congratulate you. I hope this book gets translated um, in, into Russian and other languages. I'm really excited about it. So congratulations you. to you. Thank um, you. It's been fun talking. And we've been speaking here. I am your host, Stephen Siegel, with our guest today, Faith Hillis who is the author of a new book, Utopia's Discontents, Russian Emigres and the Quest for Freedom, 1830s to 1930s, published by Oxford University Press, just out 2021. Congratulations again, Faith, and thanks so much for joining us here on the podcast today. Thanks again. And I'm Stephen Siegel here at New Books Network. Until next time.